wonderful to be here. I just hope that these days will be transforming not only intellectually, but to change our lives and that we may come out of this conference with a growing conviction, not merely that we need a new reformation, but that we see a way forward and hope that it really is going to happen and that it's not far away. This is not going to be preaching tonight, but there'll be times when you'll think it is. I do want to read two passages. The first, the verse that I just referred to in the film, by the way, I never saw this till today, and uh, it will be aired on October 31st, a whole program, this is just part of it. Uh, TBN UK flew me to Wittenberg in, in uh, July, and uh, I was given permission. It was amazing. <laughs> no one dreamed this would happen. The early part of the day, they all but threw us out. And before the day was over, they let us in, let me speak in Luther's pulpit. And uh, so I preached from it, and then I stood at the door. We just saw just a little picture of it the next morning, and uh, then went to Wartburg Castle. And uh, this will be filmed October 31st of this month, uh, not only here, but it looks like around the world. And I ask that you pray that this will be a blessing. Romans 1.17, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just will live by faith. Romans chapter 4 verse 5, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And then I want to read Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. If we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. In fact, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Well, may God be pleased to bless the reading and also all that is said tonight, based upon this is most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what is said will be heard as you intend that I will be clear and simple, cleanse my tongue, that I will be your transparent instrument to say what needs to be said and nothing that doesn't need to be said. And may this word bring great honor and glory to your name. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards taught us that the task of every generation is to discover in which direction the sovereign redeemer is moving, then move in that direction. So Jonathan Edwards' statement assumes that there is purpose in history. It assumes that God has a plan for the world that he has made. This is very important that you pick up on this right at the beginning because this kind of thinking eliminates any teaching that suggests God does not know the future, that God looks to us for input to know what to do next. That teaching has no place in the study of the Reformation. It's called open theism, which is not only post-Reformation, it is post-biblical. has no place in the Bible. What you need to see is that the Reformation in the 16th century was no accident. It was not a case of God uh, getting input from us what to do next. It took the whole world by surprise. And yet, sadly, there are those today, and the number is increasing all the time, that says that we should apologize for the Great Reformation, that it was a mistake. Well, that just shows right there how much we need a new Reformation. What happened in the 16th century was a part of God's general plan at two levels. One, at the level of common grace, which is God's special grace in nature. Two, at the level of saving grace, which is God's purpose to save his people. The Scottish Presbyterian preacher of the 19th century, Robert Murray McShane, would say, Jesus, our king, wears two crowns. One crown to show his sovereignty at the level of common grace, God's special grace in nature. That would be his rule over the nations. The other crown, at the level of saving grace, God's purpose to save his people, his rule over the church. And so the Reformation of the 16th century could be divided this way. First, the Renaissance was a part of God's common grace. And it was something that took place between the 14th and 17th centuries. It was all a part of what God was doing in the world. So at the level of common grace, for example, there developed a desire for learning for its own sake. Classical scholarship, they just wanted to read and find out what were authors saying, just to know things. Uh, and not only at the level of classical writing and literature, but art uh, as well emerged. It was the era of da Vinci, Michelangelo, and it was when paper was invented and the printing press invented. These things were a part of what God used. So you have the level of common grace, 
Jesus, King Jesus, wears two crowns, the level of common grace and the reformation of the church, where there were corrections made, people revived, God was at the bottom of it all, preparing the whole world what was about to come. Therefore, what Martin Luther accomplished was a part of God's general plan for his church. Now, as you just saw in this film, I didn't know till minutes ago that this was going to be uh, shown tonight. Uh, if there's a little bit of overlapping, you'll understand. I could have planned if I had known they were going to show that as well. But here's the thing. Luther had no idea that he was starting anything. He had no idea that he was just a little part of what would be world history in the making and that the world be, would never be the same again. Uh, in a sense, it began with John Wycliffe, called the Morning Star of the Reformation in England, who lived in the 14th century. And it was seen in the ministry of John Huss, who lived in the 14th and 15th century, who was born in the Czech Republic. In the case of these three men, Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, the issue came down to one thing, what does the Bible say? That is all that mattered. Find out what the scriptures teach. Well, that was what mattered to them. But the problem was, ordinary people did not have Bibles. So Wycliffe got into trouble for translating the Bible from the Latin to English. And the opposition that John Huss received because of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't want the people to know what the Bible taught. In fact, the Bible was a threat to Rome. The people literally wanted, uh, the people uh, wanted to know, but the church wanted them to stay in darkness. Can you believe it? That the clergy, the ministry, the hierarchy thrived on the ignorance of the people, the darkness. That is the way they wanted it. And so the Roman authorities wanted to keep the Bible from ordinary people. Well, when God is powerfully at work, there will almost always be more than one purpose person or part of the movement being more than one person. Therefore, Luther was not alone, and yet he thought he was alone. That's the interesting thing. He did it, as far as he knew, all by himself. But as I've shown, God had a general plan, and this was what was at work. He may have thought he was alone, but God had a bigger plan. God knew about John Wycliffe, so did Luther. He'd heard of him. And he knew about John Huss. And he also knew that John Huss was burned at the stake for his beliefs, simply by wanting the people to get to read the Bible. He knew of the power of the secular authorities. Luther knew very well. And he knew of the power of the ecclesiastical authorities. And although he was not alone in history, he stood almost entirely alone in his own day. He did not sit up at night 
saying, what can I do to start a revolution? How can I start a reformation? Do you know what he was thinking about day and night? He had one goal. How can I know I'm right with God? That is all it was. Uh, there's a story, it's well known in Germany, about a drunken man in a German village at two o'clock in the morning. And uh, drunk as a lord, as they would say in England. Oh, do forgive me, you gentry bred people. <laughs> he went into the local church, village church, at two o'clock in the morning, opened the door, went inside, went up some stairs, spiral staircase, and he just kept going, went all the way to the top and came to the belfry. And while he was there looking around, he slipped and fell and grabbed anything he could find, and it was the rope that rang the bell. <laughs> and in the middle of the night, holding on to the rope, trying to save his own life, the bell rang. Lights went on all over the village. People got dressed, ran to the church to see what was going on and found out it was just a man trying to save his own life. Martin Luther was only trying to know that he was saved and that he would go to heaven in any way that he could somehow satisfy the justice of God. Well, as you've heard me say earlier in this film, uh, in the 16th century, people did not have Bibles. In the 21st century, we've all got them, but we don't read them. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder if you, if, is anybody here, you've never read the Bible right through? Some of you have not read the Bible through. Some of you have not read it today. I wonder how many of you, no show of hands, have a Bible reading plan that will take you through the Bible in a year. I'm indebted to my mentor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who introduced me to this same Robert Murray McShane I referred to. He had a Bible reading plan, and I've now read the Bible through 40 times, New Testament 80 times, Psalms 80 times. Some of you have not read it once. I don't mean to give anybody a guilt trip, but I'm trying to show the difference. We have Bibles, we don't read them. You need to be reading your Bible every day. Keep yourself in the Word. And so in the 16th century, they wanted to know how to be saved. The issue today in the 21st century, do we need to be saved? And I whispered to Greg Downs a while ago, who's going to be speaking this week, He's just been given a position at Wycliffe College in Oxford. I'm so thrilled about this. When I think of a man like Greg Downs at Wycliffe, it makes me think there's a lot of good hope for the future. Because I'll tell you now, I worry about the spiritual state of England. This is where my heart is. I may sound like an American, but I've got a British heart, and I love England, and I'm scared to death of what may be happening right before our eyes. 
The question is, do people need to be saved? That's the debate. There ought not be a debate about whether they need to be saved. Of course they need to be saved. But with Luther, in his day, it was how to be saved. And so in most theological colleges and seminaries, the Bible is undermined. In fact, its integrity is questioned. So they say, well, why believe it? When I went to seminary, back in the early 70s, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, at that time, it was liberal. They thrived on Bart, Bruner, Bultmann. The dean didn't even believe in the little resurrection of Jesus. And I never will forget talking to a graduate student. He says, I've got my degree now. I don't know what I'm going to do. I came to this seminary believing in the Bible. And now I realize it's a faulty document. So I don't know what I'm going to do. James, don't let that happen to you. This is why we need a restoration of conviction of the authority of Scripture. Well, now there are two polar opposites that prevail at the present time. One, I refer to open theism, that God does not have a mind of his own. He needs us. He needs to know what we think. He's looking for us to give him input to know what to do tomorrow. Would you want to pray to a God like that? But that's becoming so popular. Imagine that you say, God, help me. And he shouts back, no, I'm looking to you for help. Like, oh, dear, where do I go? I need to find someone who can help me. We forgot that God is all-powerful, that He's sovereign, that He knows the end from the beginning. And this issue, you see, didn't even come up in the Great Reformation. That's why I'm saying we need a Reformation more than ever. And there is now the ever-growing popular teaching called hyper-grace. It's in a way related to the thinking of Karl Barth. That Jesus has done everything for you, so you do not need to ask for forgiveness of sins, since his blood has washed away all your sins. That would be a perversion of Reformation teaching. Well now, this week is not going to be about hyper-grace or open theism, but my point is, we need a reformation today. The issues are not exactly the same. And I'm very hopeful that another reformation is coming. It may or may not center on justification by faith. I think maybe it will. I don't know how seriously you would take a prophetic word from somebody. My friend John Paul Jackson went to heaven three years ago, told me, of an experience he had with God. I know he wasn't making it up. And according to him, he was taken to heaven. Messenger of God came in. I've come to announce the next great move of God on the earth. The key to the next move of God on the earth, the next great move, is the book of Romans and especially chapter 4. Well, the funny thing, dear John Paul didn't even know what Romans 4 was about. 
I said to him, John Paul, do you know what this means? If what you saw is true, if it really was of God, it means a, a restoration of the gospel. You see, this is what Luther saw. And it turned his world upside down. And it went across the Atlantic. It was what Jonathan Edwards taught from 1733 to 1738. People think of his sermon, Sin is in the Hands of an Angry God, July the 8th, 1741. They don't realize that there was a building up of revival going all over New England and in Northampton in particular, where Jonathan Edwards was preaching every week for five years on justification by faith alone, got it from Luther. John Wesley went to America. He was a total failure. He came back humiliated. And on the ship were some Moravians. And when a storm came that looked like it was going to cause the boat to capsize, John Wesley was terrified. And he saw a group of people that were just as calm as they could be. And Wesley went to them and said, how can you be so calm in this storm? And it turned out they were Moravians and all of them thriving on the teaching of justification by faith alone. They were Lutherans, they were Moravians. And so when John Wesley got home, he went to a prayer meeting or a Bible study in East London. You can go there today and there, there's a plaque in Aldersgate Street that commemorates a moment when John Wesley heard a Moravian read from Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. This Moravian wasn't reading Romans. He was reading the preface of Luther's commentary to the book of Romans. And as this man read, John Wesley said, as he began to talk about faith and knowing forgiveness of sins by faith alone, John Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed that I trusted Christ, I alone. Now, whether he was a converted man coming back when he went to America the first time, it's a debate whether he was regenerate or the heartwarming experience was when he was given baptism of the Spirit. Don't know for sure. But what we know is it was this teaching of Martin Luther made its way to England. It was what George Whitfield taught when he went to America. It's what Jonathan Edwards taught. It's reasonable to believe that if God does a great work again, it would be a revival of this gospel. And I'll tell you something else. Any move of the Holy Spirit will not repudiate a previous move of the Spirit. So be sure of this. If you ever hear of a move of God, you want to ask one question. What does it have to say about the gospel? And so, every work of the Spirit will never repudiate or contradict or conflict with what God has already revealed. Many years ago, 
there was a movement called the Toronto Blessing. And people to this day still write me letters and say, is it true, Dr. Kendall, that you endorsed the Toronto Blessing? They don't know the history. I'm not going to take the time to give it to you now, but I'll just say this. My next book comes out in January called Whatever Happened to the Gospel? Who do you suppose wrote the foreword? It's John Arnott, the pastor of the Toronto Church. Just to let you know that he wanted this gospel affirmed. A move of the Spirit that contradicts this gospel. Beware. Be very aware that angels of light show up because the devil masquerades as an angel of light. But the proof it's a true work of God will be that this gospel that Luther rediscovered, and if you hear of anybody today, Bible scholar, popular, learned, well accepted, who denies this, he's a false interpreter of scripture. Because this teaching is what turned the world upside down. It's what gave substance to the revival in England in the 18th century. And this is so important that we never forget this. Well, if we can find a person who is honest, transparent, and fearless as Luther, and who holds to the infallibility of the Word of God, just maybe a reformation is not so far away. Now, I will come clean with you, and I admit that Martin Luther is my hero. But when I said this the other day on one of my tweets, I began to get all kinds of mail, and I deserved it, because I should have made clear something, so I'll make it clear tonight. Martin Luther was not perfect. He had two blind spots, serious blind spots. And I made this right in subsequent tweets. One is that Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. For some reason, he hated Jews. I'm sorry, it's true. No excuse, don't apologize, just bad. Second, he had a faulty perception of the epistle of James. Later in the week, when I speak one more time, I'm going to deal with Martin Luther and the book of James. Well, now, Paul's statement that he gave to the Galatians, I read earlier, Galatians 1, 6, and 7. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Well, as I've said, he was not trying to start a reformation, but to save his own soul. The son of a coal miner, Luther was born November 10th, 1483, in Eiselben, Saxony, Germany. 
To please his father, he entered law school in the University of Erfurt. But he eventually dropped out, complaining that law represented uncertainty. He sought assurance about life and was drawn to theology and philosophy. But his tutors taught him to be suspicious even of the greatest thinkers and to test everything by experience. And he became disillusioned with philosophy. It taught him nothing about loving God which had become very important to him. Luther became convinced that he could know God only by revelation and reading the Holy Scriptures. But at the age of 21, though he was planning at that time uh, to go into philosophy or something like that, July the 2nd, 1505, age 21, he was riding on horseback during a thunderstorm Lightning struck right next to him, scared the life out of him. He thought he was going to die. And being terrified of death and divine judgment, he cried out, Help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. St. Anne was a patron saint, the patron saint of coal miners. Well, his father said, you can dismiss that. But Luther explained to his dad that it was a vow he had to keep. Two weeks later, on the 17th of July, he became an Augustinian monk. He devoted himself to fasting, long hours of prayer, and confession. He was so conscientious that he would return to confession after confessing his sins to a priest for a whole hour, he walked away, and an hour later came back, said, I forgot another sin. <laughs> and when the priest saw him coming, and this happened all the time, they looked at each other and said, who's going to take him now? I've had enough. <laughs> That's how conscientious he was. The priest who heard his confession dreaded to see him coming. In 1507, he was ordained to the priesthood. In 1508, he was invited to teach theology at the University of Wittenberg. On 19 October 1512, he was awarded the Doctor of Theology. And from that moment on, it was Dr. Luther. Luther became increasingly troubled about the spiritual condition of the church. He wondered about the rightness and biblical soundness of the sale of indulgences, the idea that you pay for remission of sins. You don't trust God, you get out your wallet and pay for it. And so the money was going to build St. Peter's in Rome. And he said to his fellow priests and fellow theologians, there's something not right about this. And Luther stood alone. No one else questioned it. And they said, Martin, you know what? You need a holiday. You need to go to Rome. And when you see the grandeur of Rome, 
you'll come back a changed man. Well, he went to Rome. And he went through everything they said they should go through, do everything you can, among which he climbed the Scala Sancta, the Holy Stairs. I myself did this when I was in Rome a few years ago. I wondered what it would seem like, recalling that Luther himself had climbed the Holy Stairs. But the way you do it, you don't walk up, you kneel your way up. And it was built in such a way that you could just get on your knees, raise one knee, elevate yourself, and on each step you pray the Our Father, Lord's Prayer. And for each step where you pray the Our Father, it will take so many hundreds of years out of purgatory for you. So he did that, kneeling his way up, each step, doing what they all did, except that when he got to the top, he asked, who knows whether this be true? Most people didn't bother to ask. He was so conscientious. He was so filled with honesty, transparency, and integrity. Who knows whether this be true? Well, he later said, I went to Rome smelling of onions. I came back smelling of garlic. <laughs> At some point between 1513 and 1517, when he was reading the Psalms, Romans, and Galatians, Luther had, you've seen it already tonight, what he would call a tower experience. Uh, no one seems to know the exact date. He doesn't say. But reading Psalm 32, Psalm 118, Romans, and Galatians, at some point he crossed over from doubt to assurance of faith. As for Psalm 118, he says, I call it my own. He was particularly drawn to Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. A quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 11.38. His tower experience uh, came when he became convinced that faith alone, apart from good works, satisfied, in Luther's words, the passive justice of God. Now, people don't know, we don't know for sure, when he refers to tower experience, whether he intended an intentional ambiguity, it could refer to that tower you saw in the film where he prayed, and that's what he meant, or did he mean a spiritual experience was a tower experience in his life? He could have meant both. But whatever, he saw that faith by itself plus nothing satisfied the passive justice of God so that he did not have to perform works, but that faith alone satisfied God's justice. Active justice would have meant that one does something in order 
to get satisfaction or to give God satisfaction. Passive justice would be getting satisfaction by doing nothing. Or as Paul put it, him who doesn't work. And that's hard to believe. Innately, we all are born to believe that we've got to do something to make God happy. It's what we do. I've witnessed on the streets for 20 years in London every Saturday. And often I would ask the question, do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And they would say, I don't believe in heaven. I said, but if you were to stand before God, I don't believe in heaven, I don't believe in God. I said, but just suppose you were standing before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you in? Without exception, they will say, well, I've tried to do this, I've tried to do that. Innately, we think. You say, we've got to do something. And until a person is regenerate by the Spirit, you'll keep thinking that way. And I find wherever I go in the world, and in my old age, God has given me ministry goes around the world. I find it everywhere. Whether it's in a word church, spirit church, people can't believe that it's really true that we do nothing, that we just believe the gospel. And so faith without works means justification by Luther's word in Latin, sola fide, faith alone. And when he began to perceive the implications of this, he became more and more bold. And the breakthrough came when he saw those words, the just shall live by faith. You know, sometimes you can read a passage a thousand times, and then you read it a thousand and one, and that's what happened to Luther. Faith alone, alone, sola, he wrote in the margin of his Bible. The word alone did it for Luther. Once he saw the implications of this, he never looked back. And it was never the same again, nor would the Western world, starting very soon, ever be the same again. Let me tell you something. There are those who are very, very quick to say, and they hasten to say, because they're so afraid of the charge of antinomianism. That's a word that means without law. And uh, because of the fear of antinomianism, people are quick to say, well, wait a minute, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It always has works. If Luther believed that, there would never have been a Reformation. Or take a phrase used in America. It's over here, too. They call it lordship salvation. That you cannot have his blessing as Savior unless you receive him as Lord. If Luther had believed that, there would never have been a Reformation. When he saw it was faith plus Nothing. It set him free. Now, to get somebody to agree with you on that, he couldn't find anybody. However, he did manage to get one very important person, Frederick of Saxony, who was under the emperor. And God did give him some who, who believed in him. Well, when he saw this, he was a free man. He was set free. 
And so one day, at the age of 33, 11 days later, he would have been 34. Picture this, a young man, 33, 34 years old, comes up with 95 statements called theses. And he just decides to go nail them on the door, which served as a notice board in those days. I don't know whether Halloween, October 31st, was celebrated then by the witches and the Satanists. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know. Somebody may tell me. But we know nowadays, 31st of October, the witches, the Satanists, that's their day. I think it's so interesting that on October 31st, that day, Luther nails those 95 theses to the door, hoping that scholars who read Latin would have a look, and he just wanted a discussion with the faculty. And that's where it started. But then some enterprising person took them down, translated them into Germany, into German, and then gave them to a printer without Luther's permission. And if it weren't for the printing press that came out of the Renaissance and the invention of paper that came out of the Renaissance from one of the crowns of Jesus, common grace. You see how they work together. And because of the printing press, as fast as they could print them, those pamphlets just went everywhere, spread like wildfire all over Germany. And never in years, in generations, had ordinary people been so excited. They couldn't believe this is too good to be true. Somebody's saying something about what they knew. Had to be wrong. Paying to get remission of sins and getting your loved ones out of purgatory sooner and will help you to spend less time in purgatory. You see, this is why the church wanted the people to be in the dark. It is so wrong. It's so terrible. But only Luther saw it. And so these 95 theses, taking instructions from TR, he says, Dad, why don't you, for the month of October, do your tweets on your Twitter about the 95 theses? So I've done several. And... Uh, it's interesting to read them. Some of them will let you see that he's still enmeshed in Roman Catholic tradition. You've got to remember this about Luther. He was learning. He was coming out of it. But there was a lot of Rome still in him. But it's amazing how he could see this and have such boldness. And he questioned the Pope's power over purgatory. He says, how do we know he has that power? And besides, if he does have that power... Why, in the name of love, doesn't he just let everybody out? Well, we can't do that. We need the money for St. Peter's. <laughs> that is why Luther was so hated. In weeks, those 95 theses read all over Germany by the common people. It spread to France, to Italy. Within two months, the Pope read them. And as you've heard me say, from that time on, 
Luther was a wanted man, a hunted man. And yet, it all began with Luther trying to save his own soul. Well, the gospel, an issue of personal salvation, came to the forefront. Whereas the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, had been the center of worship in churches, preaching became popular. Preaching became popular. That needs to happen again in some places. We're living in a time when preaching is just given a little perfunctory place. And it's all about worship, and I'm all for worship. But when you think about it, as the Eucharist was the center of the church in the Middle Ages, now singing is becoming the center. Not good. The preaching of the gospel, put to one side, not good. But what happened was that preaching began to explain the Bible. People never heard it before. And they flocked to the churches. It brought about an emphasis on ordinary people reading the scriptures. Previously, people thought that only priests could read the Bible and understand it. So, as I will show in a moment, Luther later translated the entire Bible into German, and ordinary people began to read it, and with the help of preaching, began to understand it. And what became the Great Reformation was begun with the common people of Germany. Although it was his breakthrough with Romans 1.17 that was so life-changing, Paul's letter to the Galatians was Martin Luther's favorite book. Well, a few years later, he decided to get married. And uh, one reason I like Luther so much, I like him as a person. Uh, I have a reputation of being a Calvinist, and I am that. And they say, well, how come Calvin is not your hero? Well, I'll tell you why. If you were going to go on a long holiday, you'd rather go with Luther. <laughs> Luther loved his wife. He called Galatians his Katie Von Bura. Talked about her all the time. John Calvin, who's written 20 times more than Luther, mentioned his wife once. You know what he said about his wife? She didn't get in the way of his work. I prefer Luther <laughs> as a person. So it was. He referred to Galatians as my Katie Von Bora. And he married her in 1525. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe in long courtships? Would you raise your hand? Long courtships. Okay. How many of you believe in long engagements? Can I see your hand? How long do you suppose Katie Von Bora and Martin Luther courted? Two months. Boys and girls, don't try this at home. He lectured through Galatians three times. Here are three interesting quotes 
of Luther. I hope this will make you smile. One, whoever knows how to distinguish skillfully between the law and the gospel, by the grace of God, he also knows how to be a theologian. Another one, anybody who wishes to be a theologian must distinguish between the law and the gospel. Third, there's no man living on earth who knows how to distinguish between the law and the gospel. <laughs> well, it's hard to read that one without laughing. But Luther was beautifully transparent and wrote as he did. And so when he saw Katie von Dora, what happened was that a group of nuns came to Wittenberg for refuge. And Luther okayed for them to be given a place to stay. And when he saw Katie, he said to her, you and I should get married. <laughs> he, they were married two months later. And all his life, he could talk about her. He loved her. They got married in 1525, June 13th. It was at the diet meeting of the Holy Roman Empire of Worms, Germany, between April 6th and 16th and April 18th, 1520, things came to a head. And so Martin Luther now was required to stand before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and the cardinal. And so he stands before the cardinal and the emperor. At a, on a table were about 25 of his pamphlets. Dr. Luther, are these your pamphlets? He looks them over. Yep. There was one called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, On the Freedom of Being a Christian, The 95 Theses, On the Papacy of Rome. Dr. Luther, will you denounce what you have written in these tracts? He asked for 24 hours to think about it. Granted. So he goes to his cell. He wrote out his prayer, or we wouldn't know what he said. And I'm amazed at this. I would have thought this would be the appropriate time for God to send a thousand angels into Luther's cell and to say something like this. Be encouraged, Martin. We're all for you up in heaven. But he cried out in his cell and walked his cell. Oh, my God, where are you? My God, where are you? Where are you? Are you dead? No, you can't die. You only hide yourself. He felt nothing. Nothing. The next day, he stands before the cardinal. Dr. Luther, are these your tracks? Yes. Dr. Luther, 
Will you, in the name of the church, deny what you have written? Translated into English from German, this is what, or something like this, he said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. He felt nothing. It's just a lesson to us. We may feel no sense of God. And we're wanting some affirmation. And sometimes he can hide his face at the most inconvenient times. But when we're standing on scripture, in heaven, it's very popular. And God affirms it. World was never to be the same again. The gospel of Jesus Christ became the paramount issue. But I mentioned that he had a friend, Frederick of Saxony, high authority, who believed in Luther. And when Luther finished, Luther was kidnapped and by Frederick of Saxony. And they got him out, but nobody knew who had done it. And some thought he was dead. Some thought they took him. They took him to Wartburg in what used to be East Germany. There's a castle there. You can go there today. And they will show you the room where Luther translated the Bible from the Greek to the German. All translations that the priests had went from the Latin to the German. Luther was the first to translate it from Greek to German. It shaped the German language. That is a known fact. No one doubts that. The secular historian will tell you Luther's translation of the Bible shaped the German language. And for the next 10, 11 months, he let his beard grow, wore a funny hat so that nobody would recognize him. And that's when he did a work that became his legacy in a different kind of way. Never forget that it was Luther finding rest of soul that started the entire movement. Well, I think we need a new reformation. The battle lines are not always the same in every generation, but Luther also said, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier must be proved. Okay, you mentioned that uh, Luther uh, translated the Bible from Greek to German. And I was just wondering where he might have learned Greek. 
Well, that would have been a part of, of the Renaissance, a learning for its own sake. And uh, Erasmus also translated the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And Luther and Erasmus knew about each other. Luther wasn't very fond of Erasmus. Erasmus believed in free will. Luther did not. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing about every one of the reformers, except the Anabaptists, uh, you've got four kinds of reformation. What is called the Reformed, that's usually from Switzerland, mostly Calvinistic. You've got the Lutheran, that's Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Norway. Uh, then you have the Anabaptists, and that went all over, and then the English Reformation. But all of them believed in predestination. But uh, that's uh, maybe it got off the subject. But Erasmus was, was part of the key uh, in helping people understand Greek. You mentioned that Luther had a bit of an issue with Jewish people, so yes. I just wondered, was that right the way through him establishing himself? Did he ever come to peace with... You want to know how Luther could hate the Jews? Yeah. Well, sadly, there's a tradition that goes all the way back to the second century, Origen, uh, who was known as a heretic, but he blamed the Jews for the crucifixion of Jesus and encouraged Christians not to like Jews. I'm sorry, but that was what was going on. And that tradition just lasted all those years. So Luther picked up on that. Right. There's no yeah. excuse for it. No, I mean, did he, did he ever come to a realization? Did he I don't get think any so. Oh, okay. Nor did he change on James. Okay. If I'd have been alive then, maybe he would have. <laughs> I often speak to the people in the street uh, because I'm an evangelist. Um, uh, when I speak to the Catholics, Catholic people, they will say that Martin Luther um, left uh, Catholicism because he just wanted to marry to Katie Bombora. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe you can help me to give the reason to them how to... Look here. All that we're talking about tonight happened in 1517. <laughs> then in 1521, July 3rd, they kicked him out of the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, to celebrate, Luther burnt the papal bull in the streets of Wittenberg. If you, in the film you saw that large statue of L Luther, that's right in the city square where Luther burnt it. That was 1521. He didn't meet Katie till 1525, two months before. Mm. And that's how it happened. Uh. You could say it was love at first sight, or he just looked at her and says, we're getting married. But he, he had been a free man spiritually, you know, in his heart for seven years, eight years. Uh. Had nothing to do with that. It's this Thank false teaching that propaganda. No, he Thank never you. knew it would get to get married. But it does show how free he became. When you think he was a priest and all that, you would think he would never get over that, but he did. That, that's how free he became. Thank you. Next question. Yes, I have um, a brief question. You mentioned that um, he read through um, Psalms 38, sorry, 32, 118, Romans and Galatians, and obviously he was constantly reading that, and that's how he came to the revelation of just the just shall live by faith. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the... Um, beginning when you began to speak about people having a Bible reading plan. And I just wondered if um, more believers um, had a Bible reading plan or read their Bible more or really got into the Word of God, 
do you think that they would experience a personal reformation and that would affect if people their did, atmosphere, are, if they did? Stay there. Let me make sure, sure I've got your question. If we read the Bible like Luther did, would we have happened to us what happened to Luther? Well, not necessarily what happened to him, but would we experience a reformation within our, personally, within ourselves? I want to say yes. I think the answer is yes. But with Luther, he was really seeking God. He wasn't just reading passively. That some do say, well, I need to read the Bible today. Let's see, what shall I read? Okay, let me see. Okay, 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Joash was seven years old when he became king. And people will read the Bible and say, I read the Bible. Yeah, but that really isn't reading it, is it? Don't expect a lot to happen when that happens. Luther was searching God with all his heart. And uh, by the way, in those days when he was a monk and even afterwards, even after he was free, he was a man of prayer. Here are the words he said in his diary, quote, I have a very busy day today. Must not spend two hours, but three in prayer. See, that was the Martin Luther. So when you seek God in his word, with all your heart, yes, that can happen. Maybe not every day. Pardon? That's what I meant, yes, in terms of, because you mentioned that some people don't read it. Yeah. That's, that's really what I meant. Should we be a people um, studying the Word of God and reading it to seek? Yeah, when you're seeking the Lord, things will happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's all right. <laughs> how can we, first of all, believe that we are justified by faith alone? And, and second, how can we practice that? Well, the way you believe it is with integrity looking through Romans when he says to the one that doesn't work but believes his faith counts for righteousness now it's a forensic action it's legal uh, here's what happens when you believe God says you're righteous you may say I don't feel righteous people look at you and say you don't look righteous to me but it's forensic, it's legal, and you believe the word. And you may not feel anything. But Luther, having studied it for year after year, when he saw it, when we get to heaven, we can ask him, you know, did he jump up and down or what? But I know it was strong enough that he risked his life on it forever. Uh, and it's believing the word plus nothing. And it's whether you with your head, say, oh, I can see why you would say that. Or with your heart, I believe it. Willing, he was willing to die for it. I would put it this way. You know you believe it when you would go to the stake for it. Until you would go to the stake for it, I'm not sure you believe it. Dr. Kendall, so I've just come back from Rome a couple of weeks ago, and I, was, I noticed how back in the Roman, Roman times, there was such a belief in purgatory, and I wonder where the notion of purgatory came from. The pageantry of Rome? Purgatory. Oh, purgatory. Sorry, I, I, I apologize. You want to know when it started and when it ended? Oh, where it came from? There's one verse that, that they use. 
And that's where Jesus said, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven in this world or in the world to come. They take that to mean in the world to come, uh, you need to be forgiven. That's where they get purgatory. Uh, and then it, it didn't really become a part of the church until the sixth century. You know, the early church fathers didn't cross their minds. Became gradually, and then eventually became so corrupt that they turned it into a doctrine, a way to make money. And, and the idea, so many years in purgatory, there's not anything in scripture about it. In fact, that verse doesn't, doesn't refer to purgatory at all, but I'm trying to give you what their answer would be. That verse alone would be that. Then there's a little bit in the Apocrypha, but Protestants don't consider the Apocrypha part of infallibility of Scripture. I, um, I think I heard you say, um, you said something about making a distinction between salvation um, and lordship. Um, and um, I, mean, I, I understand that. And I was just wondering um, whether um, the lordship aspect, um, perhaps maybe the area where the new reformation, perhaps, um, if there is to be one, uh, uh, may center on. I'm not sure I understand your question, but let's take Luther for himself. <laughs> Lordship salvation, the idea you make Jesus your Lord. Luther had done that for years. You see, he'd, he'd been there. He was as, he tried his best to be as holy as he could, so conscientious he'd come back an hour later, confess another sin. Jesus was his Lord. So that was a case of having Lord first. And the trouble with Lordship salvation, it's much that way to this, this day until you're prepared to repent of every known sin. You don't have a right to claim Jesus as your savior. Well, conscientious people would say, I'm trying to do that, but I'm not sure I've repented of every known sin because I've still got some weaknesses and they never get salvation. You see, here's what happened. Luther turned the world upside down in the 16th century. But in the English Reformation, when you got to the Puritan area in the 17th century, Luther's teaching went behind a cloud. Because whereas Luther said, faith does it, the Puritans said, but how do you know you have faith? Well, that didn't enter Luther's mind. He just said, yeah, I believe. Oh, said the Puritans, how do you know it's real faith? Well, they were taught. You repent of every known sin, you keep the Sabbath, you support God's work, you're in church on Sunday, all these things. And do you know that people by the thousands died not knowing whether they were saved? Even the number one man, William Perkins, and he was the central figure of my Oxford thesis, who articulated this, died not knowing if he was saved. Isn't that something? That didn't bother Luther, because he, he'd gone through lordship and turning from every known sin. It didn't do anything for him. And I just thought that was an aspect that should be brought out tonight. Uh, I just want to ask, sir, if uh, there is a difference between when we say salvation by faith or salvation by grace. Was, is there a difference oh, with that one? Good question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is what enables you to believe. You couldn't have faith if grace hadn't enabled you to have faith. God is at the bottom of it all. The one thing I didn't bring out tonight, I looked at the clock, I looked at my notes. John Calvin had 20 years to think about what Luther taught. Luther was very enmeshed in Rome. You know, he never really got emancipated his teachings on different subjects. The Eucharist, for example. I don't, they, he tried to say he didn't believe in transubstantiation, but he, but he did. And there were other things. Luther didn't see it all clearly. Calvin saw it much more clearly. Whereas Luther said it's faith alone, Calvin called it the instrument of our justification. Calvin emphasized the meritorious cause, the blood of Jesus. And third, the efficient cause, the Holy Spirit. So for Calvin, there were three causes. Instrumental cause, faith. That was Luther. But then there's the meritorious cause, the blood of Jesus. Luther wouldn't disagree with that. But Calvin was clearer. And then the efficient cause, Holy Spirit. What enables you to believe? Because faith itself is a gift of God.